Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cattleman's Call podcast. Lane Nordland, happy to have you with us here today as we continue to talk about uh, issues and opportunities that cattlemen and women have out in the countryside. And for our listeners out there that have been tuning into our shows over the past few months, Our most popular shows are dealing with the direct-to-consumer model or our local meat shops. Those are some of our most popular shows, thousands of downloads, whether it was the Main Street uh, uh, Butcher Show or our conversation with three outstanding producers from the Midwest and Southeast talking about how they direct market their product to consumers in different parts of the nation. And we're going to continue a conversation like that here today with uh, one of my good friends, Jake Fetta. He is a rancher outside of Manhattan, Montana, and uh, Jake was actually on the first Cattleman's Call podcast uh, uh, over a year ago, and uh, we're we're sitting at the family's kitchen table on the ranch uh, here in the beautiful Gallatin Valley. The sun is out. Uh, Jake, uh, thanks for taking some time out of the field with us here today. Yeah, thank you, Lane. Uh, Just a pleasure to be a part of it. Well, and uh, we're sitting in your mom's kitchen. I know you still live in in her basement, but no. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite. I moved out three years ago. (laughs) But uh, uh, our conversation today for our our listeners at home is uh, we've already heard a little bit about Jake's uh, uh, family, uh, the Fetus Red Angus operation, and uh, their multiple generations of ranching in the Gallatin Valley of Montana. But there's been a little bit of a development in the year and a half since we last featured Jake. Um, he, he and his family, I, I would say it's probably he got this crazy idea to start <laughs> off uh, uh, in his own branded meat brand, Fetus Family Meats. And before we jump into that other big <laughs> opportunity you did, uh, Jake, let's just do a, a little uh, background again on yourself. Talk about the operation for our friends that haven't uh, uh, heard from you before. Uh, let's just talk about the Fettis family here in uh, the Gallatin Valley. Yeah, so we're here just outside of Manhattan, Montana. Uh, we have a registered Red Angus herd. Uh, it's my father and my mother and uh, myself and my wife. Um, we have about 300 cows, have a bull sale in March. Uh, sell some registered females in December. Um, third generation operation. We've been here since about 1925. Uh, we started out in registered Herefords and made the switch in the early 90s to Red Angus uh, and then dispersed our Herefords in the late 90s. Um, and then, yeah, we've just been just been ranching here. And about, oh, probably a year ago, we started selling some meat, um, you know, just locally here, getting it processed locally. And then, and then moving that out, we've got a, a population in the valley here of, you know, city folk that have moved in from other parts of the country that want to buy local and aren't afraid to pay extra for local. So we kind of saw an opportunity there. Um, and yeah, so we were moving a lot of meat and then, then this other opportunity arose <laughs> that you were discussing. Well, before we jump into that, I just, uh, uh, you know, you talk about uh, having a population nearby. We're talking about Bozeman, Montana. It's uh, unfortunately, it's one of the fastest growing communities uh, of its size in the West. Uh, the median sized uh, household is selling for $600,000. It's just outrageous because people are following, falling in love with Montana, with the West and COVID nineteen has also pushed a lot more people out here as well. But uh, what 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 was it like? You know, going out there working with uh, a local uh, a meat shop and, and trying to uh, figure out exactly you know, what animals were going to get processed and, and sent to the local market. What what was kind of your game uh, game plan or your strategy? Did you have one? Did you get seek help from others? Uh, how, how did that go? Well, I think one of the guys that you had a podcast with earlier was Joe Lowe. Um, and he does a lot of direct, you know, to consumer marketing. And he was on my YCC trip with me a year and a half ago. And Joe and I got to be pretty good buddies. So we've we've done a lot of talking here over the last year and a half. And he's kind of helped me, you know, kind of look at that because they also run a registered operation. So, so very similar to what we were trying to do. He was already a few years into that. Um, and so, you know, through conversations with him, you know, we, we started just taking open heifers, you know, and we'd run them out for the winter and then put them on feed. Um, 
and and it was working really well. We weren't carrying any steers over at that point, you know, just trying to get those two-year-olds, uh, you know, just less input into them. Um, so we were doing that. This year we're actually going to retain a bunch of steers, run them out on grass this winter, and then we'll bring them into the feedlot after the bulls leave next spring and fatten them up. So we're increasing the number that we're doing. Um, but it's, you know, being in a registered operation, we, we take a lot of pride in providing a product that's that's top end for our commercial customers. So we're watching feet, we're watching reproduction, um, you know, structure, all those things. And anything that doesn't fit the bill, you know, we're, we're using into the, into the meat side of the business. Now, uh, obviously, as I mentioned, there was another opportunity that came up and pretty much right when COVID was really starting to take off, uh, you got the bright idea to, to buy a meat <laughs> shop about, I don't know, what is it? Three miles down uh, the road from the ranch. What? Uh, it's about five. Oh, it's, okay. It's five. <laughs> I, I got that detail wrong, but uh, for our friends at home, uh, the FedEx family, uh, had the opportunity, uh, to, uh, purchase a local meat shop called Amsterdam meats, uh, right. Like you said, five miles down the road, but that's where your meat was getting processed as well. Yeah, so it's uh, it was a state inspected facility. Is a state infect, inspected facility. Wow, if I can get that out. Um, and you know we were getting stuff processed there, and and right when COVID hit April or so, we were getting some some cattle run through there and selling that meat since it was state inspected. Um, and I I drove up there one day and talked to the manager and asked him when I could get more cattle in because we were selling the meat faster and we could get it processed. He looked at me kind of funny, and he goes, well, why don't you just buy it and run as many as you want through? And I kind of looked at him. I Nobody knew it was for sale. It wasn't advertised for sale. Um, it turns out that the, the previous owner um, texted me that night because the manager had talked to her, and she texted me that night and said, I heard you got some great ideas for the meat shop. We need to talk. And Oh, that was the middle of May, and we closed on it the 1st of July. So it was a fast turnaround. Um, it, it just, you know, and it, it was the right time to get into it with COVID and everything else. And, you know, when we purchased it in July, we were booked out through about January, and now we're booked out for 16 months. So if our, our friends listening, they're probably like, oh, my God, how does this guy do it? How does his family put up with these ideas? <laughs> his mom is shaking her head. Over <laughs> But uh, realistically, how how did it work? How were you able to pull everything together to talk to your folks, to talk to your wife? And, and really, it's a big risk. And uh, I mean, it. I know it takes time away from this operation too, but how did the family come to a consensus to be able to say, hey, this is going to be the next step so we can continue to have a family business and still ranch and also be a part of that consumer model as well? Well, you know, it all, it really started a couple of years ago. Um, you know, the, I think we're like a lot of operations out there. There's enough work for six people and enough income for two. Um, and so for a couple of years, I've been looking for something outside, you know, out, outside the operation to bring in some more income, um, to try to make it a viable operation that can, can last. So my kids can have an opportunity to do it if they want, because, I mean, face it, around the country, there's a lot of a lot of ranchers, a lot of agriculture going out of business because, one, they either can't make enough money or, two, their kids don't want to do it. But part of the reason their kids don't want to do it is because there's not enough money in it. It's all work and no play. So, you know, if we can if we can do things properly and, and put some playtime into it and mix that with our work, you know, those kids will want to come back. Um, so i hadn't found anything in two years you know i'd looked at selling mineral selling semen just nothing really popped out and just worked um until this came up and and when i first mentioned it to my dad uh he looked at me and he just shook his head and he goes you are crazy um when i told him the price and you know everything that went along with it he thought i was just insane and uh my wife has gotten used to these wild hair ideas. So I talked to her about it and she goes, yeah, whatever you think. <laughs> you know, that's just, just how she is. She trusts me to, to not get us into too deep of a hole. Um, 
So I started doing some spreadsheets and figuring out, you know, what we can make, how we can improve it. Uh, there was also a state grant available through the state of Montana, through the Department of Agriculture for meat processors to increase capacity. So when I looked at, you know, if we got that grant and our increased capacity and, and what we could potentially do and put those spreadsheets together, you know, the cash flow looked pretty positive and I showed my dad then and he looked at me and goes, well, maybe, maybe I need to partner with you. I said, you went from me being insane to wanting to partner in about 48 hours. Um, but, but he could see the potential. The previous owner did a great job, but there was a lot of potential in the business that they hadn't exposed. Um, and I could see that, and, and most of that was on a retail end. So what we did is we opened up a retail spot the two days after we bought it. Um, we started working on it before we actually closed on it and got that opened up two days after we bought it. And the first three months, we've been 300% of their previous retail sales. So that was that was really the potential that do, we do saw. Do you think COVID had a huge factor in that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, COVID was, we, we really did, I jokingly say we should have bought it three months earlier because we missed out a th- on three months of 300% increase. But um, COVID had a lot to do with it. The other side of it is, is that, you know, I knew the population base in the Valley that you had already talked about. When, when people are paying $600,000 for the average home in Bozeman, there's excess income that people have to spend and they're willing to spend it on local products. And the other side of that coin is, is that we are the only inspected processor within 75 miles in any direction. So there's nobody else that can do what we do. There's a couple little custom shops, but those guys are having a hard time finding help right now. And so that's even helped us out more. Um, so really, you know, is it was a combination of, of COVID and just the potential that was in that business before COVID even came around, you know, that we could see. Well, and in some of our conversations that we've had on the podcast, a lot of folks ask about whether it's state inspected or, or are going through the process of getting USDA inspected. It's really about what your niche is. Mm-hmm. And for yourself, do you even see yourself wanting to get USDA inspected at this point or maybe in a few years? Because your market is 20 miles down <laughs> the road in Bozeman or the Gallatin Valley. But do you see, is that a part of your game plan? Uh, you know, I did have USDA come out. We went through the facility, um, looked at it. They showed me what things I'd have to change to become federally inspected. Um, and I guess right now it's really not part of the game plan. Uh, like you say, we've got our markets 20 miles down the road, so there's no reason for us to go federally inspected unless I can't sell the amount of meat I think I can. But um, right now we're we're moving it faster than I can process it. So at this point, we're not really looking at it. But it might impact, say, like Jim Felton and his family uh, over the the pass in uh, uh, the Springdale area, who s- their main market is out of state. Because uh, I know they've, uh, you've, you've brought product from them too before, yep. Yep. but they necessarily couldn't come here and get it processed to send it out of state. They could send it to their in-state. So that's maybe the only place would be your, your customers that have... Uh, a brand that is able to ship out of state. Yes, and that is why I brought USDA in to look at the facility was that right there. Um, I had five different people with branded programs that are shipping beef across the country that looked at our facility and wanted us to process it because we are coming from some of the state inspectors, the cleanest plant in the state. And it's just a really nice facility. Um, But you know, it just didn't make sense to, to custom process to put the amount of money into it that it would take to go federally inspected at this point. Um, you know, and maybe in the future, but, you know, the, the other side of that is the ground that this facility is on doesn't enable me to grow it to 100 head a day or 50 head a day. If I could get to 20, that's where we'd be maxed out, mm-hmm. you know, 20 a week. Um, so, you know, just just looking at expansion and things, I, I really don't see us going USDA. Now, the, I know there's a bill in D.C. that would allow state-inspected facilities to ship across state lines. and If that goes through, you know, that could potentially be a game-changer for us. You know, it might change our market a little bit, but I, I just don't think that we're going to go USDA to try to ship out of state. 
Now, one thing I do want to point out is it's not just uh, like, like I mentioned, other producers, uh, you're buying other product or producers mm-hmm. or are taking some beeves and, and running it through them and having your crew process it for, for them. But uh, you're also creating a market for local producers that uh, have a, a quality um, uh, production, whether it's on the genetics end, you, you know the cattle, you know the people, you're providing them an opportunity to, uh, to sell locally and uh, to have that be a part of your branded beef program. Yeah, so, so what we're selling through Fettus Family Meats is not 100% Fettus Family Beef. Um, I am pulling fat cattle. If I know the quality and the quality is going to be consistent year in and year out, I mean, really, month in to month out. Uh, I, I am purchasing some fat cattle on the rail from them, and what we are doing right now is, like Jim Felton, for example, he was hauling his to Agro Beef in Washington, and they were giving him the five-state average on hanging weight. Well, that's a eight-hour haul. I'm buying them from him. He's hauling them 30 minutes, and I'm giving them 15 cents over the five state average. So he's making more money. I'm able to make money retailing that meat out and it's a win-win for everybody. And I've got two or three producers that I'm doing that with. Um, and then I'm also, we're working on starting a Wagyu line with the local Montana ranch here too. So it's a, uh, it's, it's been fun. How much do you stress quality when it comes to the cuts and how genetics play into that and how that relationship in purchasing future animals. Uh, how much do you stress that with these clients or potential clients? Yeah, it's uh, so what, what I typically do is take two beef in to begin from anybody that's interested in being part of the program. Uh, we cut those two up. One, we're looking at how consistent they are between the two of them. They need to be very similar in quality. And then we need to look at the quality level of those animals. Um, you know, if one's, I can't say they're grading prime because we don't have a USDA grader there, but if one looks like it's very well marbled and one doesn't, I'm probably not going to pull any more from them because the consistency is not just there. But if if they're both consistently going to grade choice, you know, that's a different, different deal. I can make that work. Um, and, and so what I talk about with these guys is, is that, you know, they really only get one strike. I'm, I'm only going to bring in one and pay them a premium on one that doesn't work. And then we're going to have to talk about the relationship again. So, and this is kind of going out into left field as I push right with my <laughs> right hand. <laughs> my, I'm holding the microphone with my left hand for <laughs> our listeners at home. But how do you envision Obviously, this is specific and unique to the area, uh, to your family, and to location of your ranching operation and where this uh, the meat shop is located. What are some conversations you've had with other producers here in Montana and across the nation on, on how they can be a part of this direct-to-consumer model but not have to put all the risk into it mm-hmm. as, as you have? It, have you talked about co-op models where people are, you know, bringing a few head in throughout the year, making sure the, the quality's there? I mean, or, or like you said, purchasing from, from producers, some leftover head that, that are grading to your standards. What, what are some of those conversations you've had with folks just, uh, just shooting the bowl over it? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know, the co-op model's been tried over and over, um, has never really seemed to take off or work. And I think part of that is, is, you know, when you go from producer to producer, the quality doesn't stay consistent. And, you know, all of us like to go to a good steakhouse, but if we have one bad experience at a steakhouse that cost us 50 bucks to go eat there, we're probably not going to go back anytime soon. So I think the the biggest issue with the co-op model is consistent quality. Now, I do know they're putting in a plant or plans are to put in a plant in Idaho Falls. It's going to be 500 head a day but they're going to do all custom. So they're going to do, you know, custom cutting for producers that have their own brand started. It's not a co-op brand. And I think that's probably the way people need to go because it just, when you're pulling from that many different producers to have a co-op, you just can't keep quality consistent. And that's the biggest issue that we have in this direct to consumer marketing is quality and consistent quality. And it varies so much from producer to producer. Um, I, I think the co-op model, I'd love to see it work. I just don't know 
how you make that work. Well, and and I'm glad you brought up that that point that it's been tried for decades, um, yeah. especially here in Montana. And a lot of prominent livestock leaders have backed out of it, or not backed out. They just say it doesn't pencil out. It doesn't work. But when we look at quality, is there opportunities, though, where you, you commit to, say, two or three head, but you're going to have an ultrasound of those ribeyes done, and if it's not there, well, we're either not going to take it or you're going to be purchased at that low, lower quality level. Would, would that work if you think about it that way? Oh, yeah, I think so. And there's also some other programs. Um, it's a Neogen has DNA testing they're doing on feeder cattle right now. Um it's why I was in discussions with them since we can't grade stuff about possibly having, you know, our, our own system set up for quality grading through DNA testing. Um, and you could do something like that as well to try to keep that quality as consistent as you can. I, I think there's opportunities there. It's just, again, you know, you get into how much money it's going to cost to get a facility running. Mm-hmm. Who's going to put up that money? I mean, ag economics have not been great the last few years, so nobody's looking for a way to get rid of $100 million. Um, and, and to try to get multiple people to invest, you know, that's an issue you run into too. So obviously you mentioned the folks that owned the Amsterdam meat shop before, uh, before you, you all acquired it. Uh, they took good care of it. Um, and uh, so you came in, for the most part, you were able just to continue on with the operation without making big purchases for equipment. Am I correct in that assumption, or did you have to get some other equipment in there? No, it was all set up and ready to go. So the, the lady that owned it before us did a phenomenal job. Well, so let me back up. This shop was started in 1945. Uh, one of the part of the building now is, is one of the originals. Um, so every owner, we're the fourth or, fourth owner in that facility since 1945. Um, the previous owner bought it in 2014. It was just a custom shop with two guys working in it. She got it under state inspection, added a lot of equipment, um, added a very nice kill box, um, you know, and, and just added some, some cooler space, some hanging space and did a great job. Um, and when she got it under state inspection was that was great she was processing her own to be sold in some grocery stores and restaurants um but didn't really see the retail potential there being the only state inspected facility so when we bought it i mean it was fully functional there was five employees there they all came along for the ride uh we've got a manager in there that's absolutely phenomenal and i never would have bought it without him being there uh, he also bought in for a small percentage when we purchased it. So he's got some skin in the game. So now I know I can go ship calves for a month here later in October and not have to worry about things getting done. Um, but yeah, it was, it was going full bore since we bought it the first of July. We're up to nine employees now. Uh, we've almost doubled the pounds that they're processed. They were processing before we purchased it in three months. So really, you know, we haven't had to buy much equipment. We got that state grant and we're adding some equipment with that. Um, but it's really just been some changes in, in processes inside the building that have enabled us to increase capacity at this point. So what is your hope and maybe the short-term and long-term plan for the, for the meat shop itself, uh, for the Amsterdam location? Uh, I know you mentioned, and if you don't want to share too many of the plans to give away the secrets, uh, I won't press you too much on that, but maybe other, other storefronts. What, uh, do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I don't have any plans we can't talk about really. Um, so <clears throat> Bozeman's got a, a great foodie culture. Uh, people in Bozeman love good food. They don't mind spending money for good food. And we've had chefs from three different restaurants come out, you know, they want to start doing local specials at, at pretty high-end restaurants. Um, you know, so that's exciting. Uh, we are going to be expanding our retail space in the next year or so. Uh, the, the building actually used to be a full grocery store. Um, so there's about 10,000 square feet that's being rented out to a, a renter right now uh, that we're going to take back over and, and turn that into a, a large retail space and fill it with all Montana-made products. Um, 
in that space, I've got I get a friend of mine that makes custom cowboy hats. We're going to put some of those in there and just really make it a Montana feel. Um, not sell anything that's not made or produced in Montana in there. Uh, there are discussions, much to my father's dismay, about possibly opening up a storefront in Bozeman. Um, and kind of the thought there is, is is open it up like an old school butcher shop, you know, slaughter them, hang them, age them, quarter them at the meat shop, and then haul them into Bozeman to that storefront and, and have plexiglass so they can watch them cut those steaks. You can custom order fresh product, have frozen product in there. Because really, we are the only facility that can, can provide local beef, pork. Uh, well, that's the other thing. We've been talking about processing beef, but we also yep. process pork, sheep, goats, alpacas, and bison. Um, alpacas is kind of an, an odd one. I was going to say, <laughs> how does that taste? I haven't tried it yet. I heard it's real rubbery and not very flavorful. <laughs> but they sell um, they sell a lot of it around here, and it they, they sell it at a high price. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's an interesting market that I didn't know was there. Um, but being the only inspected facility that can bring product like that into Bozeman, you know, not that we've cornered the market, but there, there really is an opportunity there that nobody else has. And my father doesn't like to think about, you know, having two locations, but it, it's an opportunity for us that could be an absolute game changer. Well, I think of like a storefront in Bozeman, like you said, uh, do you do a lot of everything out here in, in Amsterdam still, the, the mm-hmm. kill, the aging and whatnot, but folks want to see where that food comes from and to have that connection saying, oh, that's where the, how that cut up meat yep. comes about and to have that connection with the butcher. And I say, in all, I say it in all the conversations on this podcast, there's nothing more american than multiple butcher shops on a main street and and there is meat shops in in bozeman there's Um, one there's one but it's all boxed beef am i correct in saying that that comes in Uh, not not a hundred percent okay okay but anything they sell that's not comes from our meat shop okay it gets it gets slaughtered and aged and and cut up into primals by us and then he takes it into the shop in bozeman because we sell some boxed beef at our facility too we're just we're selling more meat than I can get processed. Um, but that's the misnomer and the, the lack of education in our society when it comes to meat is that everybody thinks if they go to a locally owned butcher shop, they're getting locally produced meat, and they're not. In 95% of cases, they're getting boxed beef that came from one of the four big packers. And so, you know, if I could open up a shop and have it be 100% local, and like you say, have have people see where that cut of beef comes from. But not only to have a meat shop, but but have an educational component with it where maybe you do some some cooking classes, some grilling classes, some meat cutting classes, you know, and, and go back to where we were thirty years ago and educate consumers. And I think COVID has shown us that people are willing to pay, you know, whatever it costs if they can get a good local quality product. Um you know, and and I also think too. And since World War II, people have never gone to a grocery store and seen empty shelves. And so, you know, our not only my generation but my parents' generation haven't gone through that. And so now, you know, the consumer mindset's been completely changed all over again. You know, we trained them that when you went to the grocery store, everything you wanted was going to be on that shelf. And I don't think that people are going to forget in the next ten years going to that grocery store and, and, you know, I'm going to be telling my kids about it. You know, well, I remember in 2020, I went to the grocery store and there wasn't any macaroni and cheese on the shelf for, for four months, you or know, and t- so teepee. yeah, toilet paper. I mean, I was cutting sleeves off my shirt. Um, <laughs> not really, but, uh, <clears throat> I, I think there's a great opportunity for direct to consumer marketing right now. And I think that that opportunity is going to stay around for a while. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really think if we can, one, have a, have a local meat shop with local meat, but then also educate consumers again and, and kind of bring us full circle back to where we were 30 years ago, I think that finally our consumers are in a place, too, where they want to know those things. For so long, they didn't care. You know, as long as they could buy it and buy it cheap, nobody cared. But I, I think their mindsets have finally changed again. 
So for our friends listening, I, I keep saying that the towns of Manhattan and Amsterdam, yes, they're very Dutch names. <laughs> and it's pretty much a Dutch colony here west of Bozeman, Montana. Um, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of potatoes grown in this country, a lot of uh, hay put up, and of course, a lot of cattle. But Jake, when you look back to your ancestors coming into this area, you know, for the most part, they were just trying to make a living and grow grow their crops to feed feed their animals and uh, just to put food on their own table. Yeah, uh, when they settled this country, what do you think they would be thinking about? <laughs> just the change in how food and how farmers and ranchers survive. What what would they be thinking as they you know compared to the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds when they settled in here? Uh one, I think just the way the valley has grown, I think would blow their mind. And, and we're, we're not talking about growth over the last 50 years. We're talking about growth in the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, it, it has just exploded. Um, and the other side of that is is that a lot of the ranch land and farmland's been bought up by out-of-staters that have vacation homes on it and lease it out to somebody or let it grow for, for deer, elk, ducks. You know, and it's not even in egg production anymore. Um, I, I think, well, I think my grandpa would think we were crazy for still being in the business at this point. I mean, it's been a tough go. Um, as everybody listening knows, you know, I always give my dad a hard time about being cheap, but he never wants to buy any equipment or upgrade any fence. But then I think about them coming through the 80s and they built their house, put up all the fence on their place put up the cabin barn, everything in the early 80s. And then I think about 20% interest and my 2.5% I got on my house this week. Mm -hmm. And it blows my mind how they even still have the place. Um, so, you you know, ag's one of those industries that comes and goes. It's It's got its hardships. Um, but I'm just thankful that we're still here. Yep. Well, and again, it, it is, it's so disheartening when you're driving like Huffine Lane, for example, <laughs> from where Main Street in Bozeman ended, and then you'd go to, to Four Corners, and every single hay or uh, corn, I know they grow some corn there nowadays, but all those fields are just developed, or yep. they're parking lots, and it is the best soil in the state of Montana. Oh, bar just, none. Just the blackest, richest soil in our state and oh, that's just it's disheartening um it's still black lane it's just black top yes it's true <laughs> but i i guess so you know and a lot of our, our friends out there farm and ranch around very populated areas but how do you envision that young producers can continue to go on um with so much development and if it when a millionaire or billionaire can come in and, and afford to buy your operation and pay 20 times per acre than what another producer could pay. How, how do we as a ranching culture work together? So you're getting your best dollar for your acre. If you're selling it to another producer or an up and coming producer, but still not make it impossible for them to be able to make their payment. Well, I think there's, well, it's funny you asked me that. I just had a conversation with the, the local newspaper Oh, oh, probably a the month daily ago. wipe, you mean? Jeez. <laughs> the Bozeman Daily Disappointment. Um, yeah, I had a conversation with the local newspaper here oh, about a month ago about young ag producers and, and how they can get started and just the difficulties with that. And they wanted to paint it in a, in a really negative light, and so they didn't include any of my discussion with them because, you know, we talked about this at NCBA at our YCC meetings. Um, and it's really about getting creative at this point. It's you, you can't go buy land here and make it pay. It's worth $10,000 an acre. Um, and so you can never make it pay with ag. But, you know, one of the or a few of the things that we talked about on YCC is one of the producers that was there, a very young kid that was getting started, first generation, went to an older producer whose kids all left. And he said, well, what if we do a rent tone type deal? And you know, it, it took them a while to really get that hammered out and what that looked like. But once they got it all done, that older producer was ecstatic because he knew that his ground was going to stay in agriculture. He was going to get a young kid started 
and yet he was going to be able to retire and be able to take his wife to Arizona. Um, you know, and so I think there's opportunities there. You know, older producers don't necessarily all want to make maximum dollar on their property. It's just a matter of a, a younger guy going to them and, and making a proposition. Um, one of the places we lease, you know, is a older older gentleman's 450 acres in the river bottom, and it's probably worth 12 or $15 million. Um, he traded his house on that property with another gentleman that lived up here in Churchill, right by the meat shop, actually. And they traded houses, and he made the land affordable to where this guy could buy it. And they swapped and moved. And, you know, he told me the other day, he says, I could have gotten a lot more for it, but I'm only going to be alive for 20 more years. I can't spend it all, so what's the point of that? You know, and, and he's done well over the years. But I think with these, you know, wealthy people, purchasing some of this ag ground too there's opportunities there to lease it you know and it's it's about working with those landowners and accomplishing the goals that they want to accomplish as well it's not just about your ag goals now you mentioned uh ycc young cattlemen's conference you would have went on that two years ago now or a year year and a half year and a half yeah um because covid obviously canceled the the Mm -hmm. the 2020 trip so are you still the chairman for the 2021 (laughs) yeah as as john robinson said i'm the first and hopefully the only two-term ycc chairman (laughs) um yeah i am slated to go again in 2021 uh we'll we'll see what happens with covid um i i hope i can because that was that was one of the best trips of my life you meet producers that are interested in the same things that you are from all over the country. And, and we still have a group chat that we're on every day. And I can't tell you how many times I've asked a question that I didn't know the answer to. And I texted it in that group. And within three minutes, I had six different responses of how to go about it. And we discuss each one and figure out the, the best way to tackle that problem. Um, and just like Joe Lowe with his meat shop, you know, he, he helped me crunch numbers. He helped me look at everything financially and price things once we got it going. And, and just, you know, that, that's, he was more help than I ever could have asked of anybody and you know, didn't ask anything of me. I'm just laughing. Your dad comes in from working <laughs> and he just grabs a sale catalog to look at and he just goes downstairs. He did, he's been pulled into my conversations, interviews before <laughs> he, he knew to get the heck out of here. Um, but no, that, I was going to ask you that though, about just YCC and traveling to the cattle industry con- conventions, those relationships that, that you make and those friendships, they, they do benefit you as a producer. Um, because where, where do you feel you'd be without talking to Joe? Oh, up a creek. <laughs> uh, I'd be like a spinning top going a million miles an hour and not getting anywhere. Um, he, he's helped me a lot. Uh, a couple other guys in that class um, within my cohort of YCC, you know, direct market or one of them's a, a share member in U.S. Premium Beef. And he gave me a lot of different ideas and thoughts and, and people to talk to. Um, one of the guys on there, his best friend has a, has a large process, larger processing facility in Missouri. Um, put me in touch with him. I mean, it's just the, the contacts you make just never end. Um, and now I'm going through because of YCC, I'm going through the King Ranch Institute of Ranch Management, uh, excellence in ag leadership class. And there I just met 30 more people that are, are just like everybody in YCC, you know, they, they all have answers to your questions. And when you can work together, it, it makes it so much easier. You know, I, I really want to just go off into the sagebrush now with a di- totally different topic, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, it, it's been dry th- this year and we've seen wildfires all over the West. We can finally see the mountains, uh, the Bridger mountains that were on fire just about a month ago. Um, and you guys weren't directly impacted by fire, but, uh, you, you had friends and family that were, what, yeah. uh, you know, how, how was the, the wildfire season for producers around uh, uh, southwest Montana? It was tough here. That fire in the Bridgers, um, it went from 400 acres Saturday to about, I think it was 8,000 by Sunday. Uh, the wind came up. Or sorry, that was on Saturday. It's 400 acres Saturday morning, and by Saturday night, it was 8,000. Uh, it was 97 degrees and 40-mile-an-hour winds, and it exploded. We didn't have any cattle up there. Um uh, the guy we have our bull sale with had about 60 pair up there, and we were up there Sunday morning. 
uh, trying to find those cows and he didn't end up losing any. He had some burned feet, uh, a first generation rancher from here in the Valley that is good friends with us. He's actually on our place doing some fencing right now. Uh, he lost about 15 and, and it was, it was pretty disheartening for him. Um, Green Mountain, Red Angus, you know, we got all their cows out Saturday night. We were up there. Well, Bob was hunting, and he called, and he said, I need trucks, and I need help, and we loaded up, and by 8 o'clock, we had eight semis up there, eight pots, I think, and we loaded the last cow out at 1.30 a.m. I don't know if you've ever tried to load baby calves into a pot that have never been in a pot. In the dark, it's not fun. Um, But, I mean, they had... They had 40 cattle trailers up there within an hour. People they didn't even know were just showing up. Um, and, and the fire got with them within about eight-tenths of a mile of their cows, so they didn't actually get affected by it. But the way it was moving, we just knew we had to get them out of there. And and it was tough. I'm sure there's going to be cattle come up with lung damage and, and other things. But I think all across the Northwest, if you look at Oregon and Washington, you know, it's it, it's just been terrible. Um, one of my YCC guys had fires on his place in Washington and you know what, it, what it really comes down to. And I think we're finally, people are finally starting to realize that it's mismanagement. It's not climate change. It's mismanagement of our forests. And, and, you know, the president, I think finally kind of figured that out and, and was forced to say something about it. And hopefully, you know, in this area, we used to do a lot of logging. There used to be lumber mills in every town. It's like there used to be a dairy on every corner. There's not a there's two dairies left out of probably a hundred in the valley, and there's not a logging mill or a, a mill anywhere around. Um, and so it's it's just one of those industries that that environmentalists have shut down. And I I'm I think we're all hoping and praying to live in the the Mountain West that you know they can get that industry going again and get control of our forest to manage that. Um, talking about Bozeman, their entire watershed is in jeopardy right now. If they had a fire go through their watershed, they wouldn't have a drop of water in that town. And you're talking 70,000 people without a drop of water. Um, and so it's it's instances like that. We might lose 15 cows, but you have 70,000 people out of water. That That's a whole nother ball game. So <clears throat> I think there's a lot of things that go along with the fire, whether, you know, forest, whether it be grazing, logging, there, there's a lot of different opportunities there to try and manage the forest properly. Very big issue, and it's just an issue we'll continue to battle and, and talk about on the regulation of things, on the mm-hmm. education aspect of it. But uh, I always steer the conversation back to our main <laughs> talking point. It might take us a while to get there, but back uh, to uh, Fetus Family Meats and the Amsterdam Meat Shop. Uh, Jake, uh, obviously we're a few months into this now uh, from the summertime when you bought this into the fall. Um, what have been the biggest learning moments for yourself in this new business adventure? I need to learn to control my wild ideas. <laughs> um, no, I think probably the biggest thing I've learned in the last four months, you know, a month of looking into it and we've been in business now for three months. We've owned the meat shop for three months is beef and cattle are two different commodities. Uh, I don't think a lot of ranchers that aren't around big packing houses understand that. Um, I'm trying to convince my fellow ranchers in Montana they're not raising beef. They're raising cattle. And I think it was a real eye-opener for me when the bills started rolling in, whether that be payroll, electricity. It costs a lot of money to have 3,000 square feet frozen and cooled all day long when it's 102 degrees outside. Um, you know, when those bills started coming in, work comp, you know, the, the bills never end. So there's a lot more risk involved with the beef commodity. And, you know, that's that's why it costs what it does. Um, I took a huge risk. If this doesn't pan out, I'm, I'm going to be in a world of hurt. But I think we can make it work. Um, but, you know, when you look at the price difference between what what live cattle are, feeder cattle are and what beef is it's uh it's because there's a lot more that goes into that product than just buying an animal and running it through the slaughter plant um you know and my labor costs me a lot more than probably what what the big guys are paying but it's a it's a huge amount i can't keep the doors open i well i can keep the doors open custom processing but we wouldn't take any money home at the end of the year it's all in the retail beef sales and 
when I look at, I guess that was an eye opener for me too. When I look at purchasing cattle on the rail, even 15 cents over the market and what I can retail that animal out for that entire carcass, there's almost a hundred percent profit margin, you know, and granted there's, there's some pretty big risks that they go into that hundred percent profit margin, but it's, uh, there's a reason those packers make the money that they do. Um, and I think that that was a, an eye opener for me versus going to the grocery store and just seeing ribeyes for nineteen ninety nine a pound and thinking, man, we're getting screwed on our end. But I look at what what goes into it from the time that that feeder calf gets loaded on the trailer in Montana, goes down to the Midwest and goes on feed for eight months, um, and then the amount of costs the feeders have into them, and then the amount of costs that the packers have into them, turning that product that commodity into another commodity. Um, it's no different than than the steel company that gets paid hardly anything for their steel, and that steel is going to build a, a Chevy Silverado that costs seventy thousand uh, dollars. It's the same thing. We're just a, a cog in the cycle. Well, I'm sure there's some folks that disagree with that, that <laughs> statement, though. But there are absolutely. But you know, I'm sure you'd be open to talking with them too. Yeah, um, absolutely. Fattestfamilymeats.com probably the best place to get yeah. your contact info. Yep. But you know, Jake, as as we look at this, it, it's all about just trying to stay in business mm-hmm. and keep the family going and uh, continue to have another generation on this place where where we sit today and and have that meat shop continuing to to cut and process and keep people eating that that healthy, nutritious protein, which is beef. Yep. Um, any last tips or or anything else you just want to share here today before uh i let you back to your work day and uh i hope i hope you have a little more work here today (laughs) oh there's the work's (laughs) never ending Uh, i'm getting ready to ship cattle for superior here in the next two months and i won't hardly be home so i gotta get a lot of things done before that but no i think i think you know there's an opportunity for every rancher to direct market um it's something that we need to, you know, as, as a rancher, you need to do a lot of research on. Um, you know, one thing that I've seen through the meat shop is, is some of the animals that people want processed that they direct market are not quality product. Um, and, and I would say as a beef industry, and when we're looking at direct to consumer marketing as an industry, we need to pay close attention to that quality of that product because the fastest way we can hurt ourselves is to put a put a you know mediocre quality product out there and charge top dollar for it and that's what everybody's doing right now and if it's a top dollar product people are going to eat it they're going to love it and they're going to come back for more but the first time somebody has one of those bad experiences they're going to go to one of the competitors and buy chicken or pork or buffalo i mean the amount of bison we sell is insane um so I, I really think, you know, as we're looking at, at direct marketing, we need to pay close attention to quality. That's the biggest thing. And other than that, I, I wish everybody luck at doing it. Well, hey, just speaking, I know you're a rep there for Superior Livestock. Uh, you know, we didn't know what these cow-calf price, what these, excuse me, what these calf prices were going to be uh, when we were seeing the backlog in cattle in, in feedlot country and at the Packers. And, but, you know, for the most part, you know, I think prices were pretty dang good during a pandemic. What, what did you hear from your longtime clients? You know, well, when I started talking to them and, late February, well, right when we got back from the cattle convention, uh, you know, people were throwing around 90 cents on these calves this fall because nobody knew what was going to happen. The plants were getting shut down. You know, we had no idea what was coming. So when we started selling feeder cattle for $1.50 plus, um, you know, all in all, I think everybody should be real happy with where we're at. Uh, Things could have been a lot worse. Um, most of my customers are, are pretty happy. I had a couple that were a little disappointed, um, but that more had to do with what what their neighbors brought the lot before them, not so much, you know, where the price should have been. And, and you know, I'm going to give props to all the cattle feeders and cattle buyers out there because even today at what they're paying for these feeder cattle, they aren't breaking even on the board. And so they're sticking their necks way out there, way further than I did with this meat shop or whatever dream of doing, you know, to make this deal work. And they could all said, forget it, and offered us 90 cents and we would have had to take it. But, but you know, realistically, those guys have stuck their necks out a long ways for all of us. So 
I, you know, I'm really happy with where we're at. We have yet to kind of see where the bread market is up here in the north, but, you know, I would assume it's going to be down. You know, I think our herd expansion is over. Um, so I, I would guess bread prices are going to be down, but, but calf prices and, you know, depending on how the election goes this fall, uh, if it goes the right way, we could be ramping up for a couple pretty good years in the cattle industry, I think, you know. Oh, the election. <laughs> Let's not get on that one. No, nope, we're not going to get on that one today here. But again, Jake Fettis, uh, outside of Manhattan, Montana here uh, with the Fettis Red Angus operation, Fettis Family Meats, and, and owner of the Amsterdam Meat Shop here in Little Holland, <laughs> as we can refer to it as. But uh, I, I don't think you are the little Dutch boy with your finger in, in in the dam i i think things are a lot more organized and but you have a lot of resources that that you utilize and you listen to people's advice and you know like i like i we, we discussed just the connections that you and i have both made uh through our our time and young cattlemen's conference oh heck i i yeah i joined you guys on the last few days in washington dc yeah we did a podcast one. yeah that's where yeah. we did that podcast that was the first one it was the first one um I mean, cowboys on scooters, that's still about the, the greatest thing on earth to, to see is when, when uh, someone gets, gets, gets to town for the first time and, and gets to saddle up a different type of mode of transportation. You know, Lane, there is one story from our YCC class I'm just going to share about cowboys on scooters. Okay. We were doing a tour of the monuments, and we were looking at the, the back side of the White House, and there's two fences and about 10 feet between those fences. And we had a uh, gentleman from the sticks in Colorado get on a scooter and ride between those fences. And it was about three seconds, and he had uh, four Secret Service guys pointing ARs at him, telling him he couldn't be there. And here he is trying to get a scooter to go faster by kicking it. And the whole thing was caught on video, and it was hilarious. I think I caught that on video, didn't I? <laughs> you may have. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Jake, again, thank you so much for, for sharing about uh, your new adventure, uh, a rancher buying a meat shop. Um, that, that's not seen too much out there, but uh, it, it's just a great opportunity to uh, just stay, uh, to stay in the livestock business. Again, for more on the Fettis Family Meats. You can visit them online, and I'm sure we'll hear back from Jake sometime down the road again, maybe on a YCC trip or a panel show that we'll have down the road. Hey, friends, thank you so much for joining us here today. We are literally at the kitchen table having this conversation, talking about all that's going on in the industry, and I just think the industry looks pretty bright uh, with uh, great ideas like, like like Jake has and the support he has from his family and friends, and, and uh, we can only just do that more for, for each other out there across the countryside. That will do it for today's show. If you have any suggestions or comments, make sure and visit us at ncba.org. Click on the Cattleman's Call podcast tab, and you can even suggest a, a future show. But, uh, friends, I, I hope you're all doing well out there, and we'll continue to have the Cattleman's Call. Oh, hold up. Hold up. I've been forgetting to do this. What is your cattleman's call? What's your cattle call when you're when you're getting cows in? You gotta do it. Everyone's been doing it. Hey boss. There we go. All right. Jake Fettis's cattle call. Hey friends, thank you so much for joining us here on the Cattleman's Call. I'm Lane Nordland. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call Podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.